Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to cinematographer Steve Yedlin, who is the director of photography for The Last Jedi, as well as every other Ryan Johnson movie, including Brick, Looper, and Knives Out. This is such a fascinating conversation, tracing his work from student films to indie movies to blockbusters and beyond. You are going to learn so much, and I am so appreciative of his time. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 123, Steve Yedlin. Before we, we dive into your actual filmography and everything you've worked on, I'd love to really just dial it all the way back to you growing up and you being an inspired kid. What was inspiring you? What was driving you in terms of creativity? And how were you really showcasing that creativity as you grew up? Well, I don't think I was showcasing it very well is the answer to that. But yeah, you know, when I, when I was a really little kid, I mean, Star Wars was, was such a huge thing in my life. Like it was so overwhelming and the, and the music and, you know, that was also at a time, you know, that John Williams score is just so such an indelible part of my childhood yeah. and now my life, you know, also at that time, firstly, you're a kid and you have different memories, but also it wasn't, you know, we didn't have streaming and, you know, VHS was kind of coming in, but rare. So it was really magical whenever you got to see it. Like we didn't have a VCR, but like my cousins had a VCR and they had Star Wars. Uh-huh. And that was always absolutely magical. But, um, you know, at that age, I didn't have any interest in, you know, I wasn't like a filmmaker mm-hmm. or thing and you know that was more in in middle school I got really into the back to the future trilogy and that's that's when I got a lot more interested in like wait a minute how do they do like who does this how do they do it you you know and uh because obviously I was I was a different age at that point that was that was kind of what got me into it to begin with as a a kid you know dazzled by those spectacles and you know what has interested me about cinema and and visual narrative and all that has has only like expanded and grown since then going to school for it at usc like what what was that journey for you of really becoming more conscious of how films are made or what were you really learning when you when you went there through the program you know, you know the program's very over or at least that time i don't know how it is now it was very overarching mm-hmm. you know it wasn't specialty focused it wasn't technical focused it was a very sort of overview and so in terms of actual cinematography and more like on the ground storytelling you know really learned that from doing it from making short films with Ryan. Um, I've been friends with Ryan since we were 18 and 19 years old. And we just make short films on the weekend. Like on Friday night, we would say, Hey, you want to shoot something this weekend? And by Sunday night, we had shot it, cut it together and done our version of final sound on it, which, you know, is just a homemade movie. So, you know, I think that was really the most learning is, you know, in my case was from doing, you know, I think the biggest moment of revelation that I can remember is in high school, I started volunteering on films at USC, which is obviously before I went to USC. Uh And I was in high school and I had been for the last few years since middle school interested in, like I said, how do films get made and, and stuff. And the first time I showed up on a student film set, which of course they don't do it exactly right like a real set, but it is a set, you know, they, there's departments and, and everything and seeing for the first time Cause I hadn't like looked at the, you know, I could have studied the credits of a movie, but it didn't mean anything to me. So, so actually seeing it for the first time, like that, there, that there's different departments and that division of labor, yeah. um, that was really kind of immediately when I got interested in cinematography per se, you know, as, as opposed to just generally how do movies get. Made. Right. 
I'd love to delve in a little bit into that initial relationship that you and Ryan had because it's been so fruitful is, is a understatement. Uh, <laughs> uh, and what was what were the initial things that like drew y'all together? I mean, some I'm glad he's he has posted some of the short films. I think there's the evil demon golf ball. Well, even even though that looks very homemade, that was actually much more of like that was actually for class. Uh, that was you know so that was actually done over a semester and planned out and stuff. We had, we had really homemade throwaway like just practice stuff that we would just make these little short films on the week weekend as well. So I met him when I was volunteering on one of those short films. I was a senior in high school and he was a freshman at USC. So he was at USC, but he wasn't in the film school yet. Mm-hmm. And um, we were just both volunteering on those things, a student film shoot on the weekend. So instead of it being a straight run, it's like on the weekends over, you know, at first we didn't really get to know each other. We were both just kind of there. And then I think on the last couple weekends of it was when two big things happened. One is just, we actually started talking to each other and became, <laughs> became friends. Uh, and the other was, you know, there was kind of this amazing moment where, you know, he, like even in Ryan, even in Ryan's own description, he talks about how, you know, like I, I had been, I hadn't been on professional sets, but I've been on other student film sets. So in some ways I had more experience than the film students. So I was helping with like loading the camera and, and stuff like that. And he was kind of doing the, like, I mean, the, you know, he loves to make a joke out of this, but it wasn't happening all the time, but he would, you know, they even had him doing things like they ran out of sandbags. So can he sit on a C-stand to hold it down? Uh-huh. And, you know, so he had kind of been on the sidelines. He would sit there reading his Agatha Christie books mm-hmm. and holding the C-stand down. And then there was just one weekend where the the DP and director were just getting kind of flummoxed and kind of couldn't figure out how to cover this scene, mm-hmm. like at all, let alone in an interesting way, but at all, they were kind of flummoxed and, and Ryan just popped up and he had the entire scene in this incredibly visual, visual storytelling way already planned out where he jumped up and he was like, you know, so the first shot is this, and then you cut to the shadow of the thing on the wall. And then when you cut back to this, you see and he had the whole thing figured out. Yeah. After USC and you're starting to work professionally, some of the first credited films that you have are all horror focused. And I mean, Lucky McKee and Toby Hooper, uh, like, like yeah. really, that's uh, crazy in itself. But what sensibilities did you kind of take from horror as you kind of started your career? And especially with those early projects, are there things that you still think back on or you, that you learned, especially from someone like, like Toby Hooper? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, firstly, just specifically, I mean, I just, Toby Hooper, I just learned so many, you know, he was just so experienced and I learned so much stuff about, you know, blocking with actors and, you know, like not, not necessarily, you know, big picture philosophical cinematic stuff, but just real on the ground movie making. Um, And, uh, you know, I I didn't seek out the horror thing. It kind of, you know, I kind of fell into it. I'm I'm not, you know, not that I, I'm not against horror movies, but it's not usually any kind of a go-to genre form, but I'm ridiculously lucky and grateful that I did those um, largely, not only, but largely because, you know, when you're starting out and you yourself are less experienced, which also means you're a lot of times working with less experienced people, horror is probably one of the few things where it's almost demanded that, that it not be bland and boring, that it's daring and has rich photography. And, you, you know, because if you start out like with comedies or something, you know, not only when you yourself are inexperienced, it's hard enough to, to have the self-control to do it. And then on things like that, it's not just the self-control, it's all the pushback and 
you know, you know, there, there's that thing where less experienced people, you know, talking about like producers and directors and stuff like that, even if they have good taste or, you know, impeccable taste when they're looking at a third party, like, just do you like this movie? Then sometimes when it's their own thing, they suddenly can't see it. Right. And, you know, they, they think that the thing that's a small, tiny fraction, less bland than the most bland it can be is way too daring and scary and dark, Right. <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> and, you know, and when you do horror, you know, you don't, you don't have that problem, you know, like you can, um, you know, there's all kinds of other things in terms of the budgets are so low sure. and the time and, and, and all that, but at least there, there's that little bit more of a chance to hone your craft on the real sort of rich photography that you're hoping to to finally do rather than just fighting against blandness well it's funny that you say fighting against blandness and and rich photography because then as we move into brick i rewatched it maybe a month ago two months ago and it is (laughs) it is just a beautiful movie like even like it is it is really just fascinating and also just being kind of the first blooming of of so many of y'all really working together in in such an incredible way i'd love to dive in on that a little bit in your experience working with that whole crew really for the first time in a professional way with with at least some budget not not a big budget yeah. but some budget what was what was brick like and how did that kind of set the tone for all these future projects i mean it was just incredible and and it's you know really ryan's done the ryan thing his entire career he's gotten better and more refined but all the way back to evil demon call fall from hell in film school <laughs> right. and, and even before you know, the, the, you know, he's always been so incredibly brilliant and, you know, you know, and of course I also saw this in his stuff that he had shown me um, that he had made before I even met him, mm-hmm. you know, he's really always been so focused on the most sort of visually interesting and exciting way to tell the story. And that's something that's, that's never really changed. I mean, he's gotten better at it. He's, you know, some of the, you know, we've all gotten better and honed our craft and, you know, also honed, you know, details of the kind of working style and everything. But overall, you know, he really has always been focused on that both in himself and in inspiring me and everyone else to, to use the same principles that he is using mm-hmm. in figuring these things out. And, you know, I, I do think that sometimes, sometimes the way I hear people talk about it, uh, you know, especially people that are, you know, like when film students ask questions or up and coming, but even even established people, I feel like sometimes there's a sort of putting things into categories where sort of either you're kind of doing bland, boring coverage, or you're doing kind of acrobatic Mm show-offy shots. And to me, those are kind of just, those aren't almost even opposite to me. Those are two different incarnations of doing something that's very robotic and not thinking about the story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Ryan's approach is always, he wants to do the thing that's, again, just the most visual and evocative for what the story is. And that doesn't mean necessarily that coming up with crazy stuff like this, you know, the steady cam walks off of the crane and into right. the, you, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like it, it's not about acrobatics, but it's also not shying away from, you know, things that might seem uh, just on the surface acrobatic because it's just really the best way to most visually exciting way to tell this exact story of what's going on right now. And it really is about a story in the frame, yeah. you know, like what what's in the frame and what's not in the frame. And when do you cut to something and when do you reveal it with a pan? And It is, again, fascinating to see y'all progress. And I think Brothers Bloom is a very interesting kind of middle ground between Brick and, and Blooper and then everything that comes after that. But with Bloom especially, I'd be interested. Y'all are all kind of putting on a little more weight, I think, in terms of 
what oh, you're yeah. trying to achieve. And I think you one time referred to the styles like theatrical realism. And I think that's a very interesting way, especially for Brothers Bloom to kind of contextualize that film. What were the biggest differences for y'all kind of jumping from Brick to Bloom? Again, kind of nothing except just it was a bit of more more to shoot. Yeah, you know, we, we got to travel and 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 stuff, but it's still the thing where it's Ryan. He's ho- he's honing his stuff, so he's getting even better. But yeah. it's still doing it in his style. We're you know we're you know of course the budget and resources were bigger, but really only in proportion to what the script demanded. You right. know, it wasn't expanded for the sake of luxury or to or to not have to make decisions in advance right. or to carry a bunch of extra gear that we don't need or anything like that. It was really just expanded and the, the, the requisite amount to actually make that movie. <laughs> so, right. uh, but, but it, but it was, you know, absolutely magical and, you know, seeing Ryan do it on that next scale up where right. there is this magical sense of globe trotting and, right. <laughs> you know, all, all of this stuff going on where, whereas, you know, brick, well, you know, basically all takes place in that high school, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, it, it was, it was fantastic, but it wasn't some, big world of difference and that that's kind of been the ryan thing the whole time like even last jedi and knives out but i think last jedi being the most surprising one because it's not only the enormous size of it but the fact that it's a franchise and everything right. it still just felt like doing a ryan movie it felt like it felt like brick or whatever and it's a family and we're all just you know we're all just making this movie he's got a really he's got a really clear vision and a steady hand and that's not that's not micromanaging it's freeing because you know it just basically you know what the goal is and then within that you, you know you're totally free to do your thing yeah. you know i think uh, ryan always quotes our our producer rom that we've worked with forever he's done all the movies and you know all the way back to brick and uh, you know as ryan says he always ends all his phone calls with go do your thing uh-huh. And that's kind of the, you know, that's kind of the thing is like, it's, you know, by kind of drawing the the outer bounds of this is what we're all aiming for. Now do your magic. I'm not going to micromanage you. It is actually, if if that makes sense, like it's because it sounds like it could sound like it's straight jacketing that he knows exactly what he wants, but he only knows exactly what he, but he knows exactly what he wants to a level of specificity. And he knows not to micromanage you on stuff that he's going to end up making it worse with you know like he doesn't he wouldn't know any details about what lighting unit to use to light a set so he's not going to try to micromanage that and he's he loves to be uh surprised and delighted about how we actually do the you know the thing that he's he's laid out is he absolutely wants this he doesn't want something else but the this in that sentence is is a is a broad description not a super fine-grained demand that's an interesting thought just because then when we move into we'll skip Looper because I'll take like 45 minutes to gush about Looper. We don't, we don't need to do that. <laughs> but but Last Jedi is so interesting. Like you said, it because it's a franchise, it has, well, it had a defined visual style to a point and then you and Ryan and everyone that worked on it were really able to make it a Ryan Johnson movie and that is why it is my second favorite Star Wars movie of all time besides the original oh. Star Wars movie, right? Like, it, because it, because for the first time in a long time, it felt like a like an auteur's vision, which is what's so, I think, still long-lasting about that original Star Wars. It feels so wild, yeah. really. And so I'd love to maybe take a step back to the initial days of The Last Jedi and the first conversations that y'all might have had about what the the goals were, what you were wanting to achieve, and then especially with the visual style, what you were hoping mm-hmm. to achieve, and whether it was emulation of any particular part of Star Wars, maybe an Empire focus, uh, but also what you were wanting to bring specifically as the like the Ryan Johnson 
and Steve Edlin look and feel to the <laughs> Star Wars universe and really kind of make yeah. it y'all's own. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Yeah, because it's interesting that you said the the you know what were the first conversations because pretty much the very first time I actually sat down with Ryan because I I was I was on another movie in Australia when. Uh, he told me this was going on when I got back to LA and the first time we sat down and actually talked about um, the new, the new star Wars movie uh, was probably also the last time we did any kind of an, uh, sort of an overarching, what are we going wow. for? And, you know, cause Ryan and I are really into that, like, let's not have endless, make sure our tastes are similar conversations. Cause we already know our tastes are similar <laughs> and let's just, let, let's, let's roll up the sleeves and actually, start designing this movie and these shots and keep refining that. You know what sure, I mean? It's like yeah. doing doing drafts and revisions so that by the time we get to shooting it, we actually have honed this to a 10th draft. It's not like the 10th first draft. It's actually been honed because we've been actually working on the thing, not just talking in circles about here, here's a reference of a movie I like. Okay, but which aspect of it? Because you know what I mean? So, um, but yeah, in that first conversation, you know, cause I, I asked him basically what you just asked me, <laughs> you know, what, you know, do, is, is there a, you know, is there a mandate from the studio? How do you see it? Do we have to do anything to try to make it look like anything? You know, his response was just, no, I mean, firstly, the original movies don't even look like each other. The right. first three look totally different from each other. And those look different from the prequels and each one has a unified look, but they don't really look like each other. You know, he said that, you know, he was just like, look, it's hard enough to, you know, as we were talking about a little bit earlier, design what's just the best visual way to tell this story. It's hard enough just to do that and to do that with some sort of second guessing of what someone else would have done. Right. Which is gonna, which isn't gonna feel right anyway, because that person wasn't second guessing, right? You know, whoever that per, you know, it's like to me, it's kind of an analogy of, I mean, there's different ones, but you know, like when you hear people saying they got, you know, the exact same multi-track recorder and the same guitar that the Beatles used, and you're like, but literally the thing they were doing was something that no one had ever done before. Right not exactly copying some 40 year old thing. Right. So, so it was kind of that of let's, you know what, let's not second guess. And also, you know, he also just said, look, our, our style isn't so radically non-Star Warsy that somebody's going to say, you know, yeah. like it's, you know, our, like our, our general style of coverage. And then there's no way, you know, our general style of everything, coverage and lighting and everything is, it's not like it's radically outside of that aesthetic. Yeah. And then, you know, you add in, of course, there's almost nothing you can do to, I mean, if you're shooting on the Millennium Falcon, there's pretty much nothing you can do to make it not look like Star Wars. <laughs> right. So, you know. <laughs> right. Again, it is the most beautiful Star Wars movie. And it is, it is so, um, I mean, like, I, again, I can't gush too much about Last Jedi, but it is <laughs> just in terms of the uniqueness and, and what it elevated in the Star Wars universe, I think is, is really fascinating. And oh, thank you. That's amazing. I would love to maybe delve into the technical side of it a little bit, because I'm sure, sure. Even if it is a Ryan Johnson production and even if it's y'all working together, you're working a little bit more computer generated focus and really and having to think about the special effects and having to work through things. I know there was sky panels and LEDs and everything yeah. there. How was that affecting your process or was that process really done post-production or was a lot of it on set? Oh no, we were doing it a lot. And, and, you know, the light control, all of that light control, something is, is thing is just something I've gotten way more into since then. But yeah, we were doing, and this was some stuff, some of this, I actually completely did myself, not just overseeing, but like for that sky panel stuff, we had the, we had a basically for all of the, well, for some other things too, but for all of the 
agile cockpits, mm-hmm. you know, like sort of one man, you know, one person fighters and speeders and, and spaceships and stuff, you know, they would be on a gimbal, you know, so that it could shake and move. And we did it inside of this light dome that had, that was basically completely, you know, it was a hemisphere of diffusion and sky panels behind it. And uh, we also had a sun on a crane. So you have the sharp shadow that's really right. And it looks like it's floating. So as the, you know, if the craft turns, you actually see it sweep over. But what we were doing with the sky panels was, you know, really, if you're familiar with the CG, what they call two and a half mm-hmm. D versus 3D, the two, two and a half D is, is projecting a 3D thing as a two-dimensional surface that's not flat. Right. If that makes sense, like it takes, start with something that's 3D, look at it, project it onto a plane as though like a camera does, but then bend that. We were doing not everything. If it was just a flash, of course, it's just a flash. Everything, you know, if it's a green laser bolt, everything goes green. But for the other stuff, we were actually doing two and a half D stuff where we would, or I mean, like I actually did this myself. I would build these little scenes in, in Nuke and then flatten it and unwrap it. So that's it's the exact right sort of, you know, the light's coming towards you. It's getting brighter, brighter, brighter. Then it passes really fast and then it recedes. And it's not subjective. It's literally calculated in 3D as an approaching, passing, and receding light. And then the way that's executed is, of course, like this cluster of sky panels in the front is getting brighter, brighter, brighter. And then suddenly, and in the exact sort of ramp up and ramp down, they go past and then they dim at the back. And we did that for all kinds of things. We did that not for, for flying in, in, in atmosphere, flying in space. We did it for the Fathier chase with the with the golden lights of uh, Dubrovnik mm-hmm. going by. And I'm going to watch The Last Jedi tonight, <laughs> so that's good. Um, <laughs> uh, I'd love to maybe key on a couple scenes, and I'm sure you've talked to death about a few of them, but, but and if there's any that maybe you would want to bring up otherwise. But, of course, the throne room scene is... Like of all, like so many iconic Star Wars duels have happened and fights have happened. And then really just like taking it to the next level and the level on top of that for, for the Red Room and for the actual fight. What were you hoping to accomplish and how were you really making sure that that vision was met since that's such a technically complicated shoot to really make sure that that's yeah, absolutely. achieved? You know, obviously Ryan had this really, I mean, this is also a great example of what we were saying of he's got a strong idea, but not saying how to do it. And he's delighted with, you know, to see what we come up with. So, um, you know, he, so he had this idea that he of course really wanted to do that was this really strong red (laughs) thing, which is, which is exactly what it was. And the curtain burns away and all of that. And, um, you know, and, and obviously it's a really, bold, exciting idea. Basically, we had our color pipeline all set up to where I wasn't worried about, you know, because we, we were shooting both digital and film, you know, interchangeably. And, that, you know, I wasn't concerned about like the red coming out ugly electronic red because our color pipeline was all set up to where it was going to be, you know, if it's the right red in the room, it's going to come out a painterly great red and not like an electronic garish mm-hmm. magenta red. Um, so that part was kind of all set up and we didn't really have to do anything specific to that scene for it. But um, but, but what we did do a lot of work specifically to the scene for, you know, me, you, you know, me and the gaffer working with the production designer and his art department to figure out, you know, what is this physically going to be like? Is it actually backlit or frontlit? What red is it? You know, and all of that stuff. So so they found a, they found a red that, that Rick, the production designer, liked, that Ryan liked, that could actually be stretched that big without seams in it or with few enough seams that it wasn't a problem. And, and then we actually lit it with red light to make it even redder. 
Um, but, you know, and we tuned that in very precisely too, because, you know, we didn't want necessarily just whatever color it happens to be like if you like in a LED such as a sky panel, if you just turn the, you know, it's got four different colored diodes in it. If you just turn the red one on and the other three off, that's an arbitrary color. That's probably not what we want. And it's probably too saturated and too magenta, you know, so we found this sort of exact color. That's a slightly more yellow red um, that we liked. And, you know, like I said, cause our pipeline was buttoned up to where we knew we were always going to get sort of, you, you know, cause, cause we were shooting, some of the stuff was digital, but even the stuff that was film was going through an all, you know, digital pipeline, but we knew that the whole pipeline was buttoned up for both. It was going to come out the same with either camera. It didn't matter. It, it was buttoned up so that it was more like a traditional film print pipeline, where as, as you know, col- colors can get more and more saturated, but they don't also get electronic and garish the same way. So, so we, so we were comfortable knowing that our pipeline was set up for that, which meant we could go bolder with what we were doing on set because we didn't have to second guess, you know, what if something goes crazy in that pipeline? You know, my approach, which I, of course, checked in with Ryan, but, <laughs> right. you know, was, was you know, I didn't want people to be bathed in red. We do have that in the movie, like in the in the Dreadnought Bridge. The people in the space are actually lit really neutral I mean, with the exception of the, the, those lights around Snokes are kind of cyan blue. So if somebody gets close to those, that's, right. it's cyan blue, but the, the general light in there um, is actually neutral. And it's, it's actually a great, I, I mean, I, I think this is actually a great study in sort of the psychology of color too, because people remember that scene as being bathed in red and people say red light and bathed in red and stuff is like literally there's no red light on people and it's the th- the thing in the shot is vibrant red and we and we have really red light on that thing right and I, I think it's really a testament to what you remember because it's not confusing chaos of color that the room is mostly gray the wardrobe's mostly gray um the light is neutral so when you have a neutral canvas with this really daring stroke of red like that you know, you remember the red so much that you remember it as though everything's red. You know, it's actually str- the, the fact that everything's not red is actually more subtle when you watch it, but stronger in your memory. I love that as a setup and a, a background for that scene, because because then obviously you have this incredibly kinetic duel. Well, I guess it's not a duel because that'd be two people, but multiple, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. a, a bunch of uh, the fight scene. And then especially when it's compared to the climactic fight scene between luke and kylo and you mm-hmm. have that kind of juxtaposed against each other i'd love yeah. to first talk about the the throne room fight scene and the limitations you might have had but also anything that was really driving how you shot that and to make sure that it was as kinetic as it ended up being on screen yeah well i mean the the amazing thing was that all of the stunt coordinator and, and fight coordinator and all the all our stunt performers everybody was so unbelievably talented and they and they and the thing is it's not just that they're good it's not like just they come up with this amazing stuff which of course they do mind-boggling i don't know how they do it but beyond just being good at it they really really figured this out in advance they went over it with ryan they shot stuff they tweaked it until he until he was really happy with it in prep and everybody on set all the stunt performers and everybody had every movement memorized and even the actors did too because obviously a lot of it is the actors and and so they could do it like a dance where it's go from this point to that point so they they had done this 
unbelievable, just mind-boggling prep on the whole thing. And then when we got there, Ryan was able to, you know, oddly, it was th- that scene was actually less storyboarded than, than some of the other ones, but it was able to be just as, if not more, designed. Um, because, you know, he didn't cover, you know, a lot of times when you have like a chaotic fight scene like that, the way it's covered is like with a bunch of cameras and it's shaky and tight and lots of cutting. And, you know, sometimes it feels like somebody falls down because the camera shook, you know, like the camera is shaking so much. Right. You can't tell what actually happened. And, you know, this was the opposite where kind of like we we're talking about before he wanted it to be the most you know, this doesn't mean static and boring. It's exciting, but where it's exciting, where you can see what's happening, you know, it feels like a good magic trick instead of a bad one. Cause it's not like you're cutting all the time. Like it's not like the whole thing is, is covering up the problems. It's, you know, and so he was able to have them go step by step, like, okay, this shot's going to be this part of the fight. And he would have, okay, so, so go to that position and he would hold the finder and we would do it exactly like you would do even like with a static close-up where the dolly grip would mark the position and the height and everything is like, okay, now go to the next position. And as <laughs> they go across, he goes across, you know, like maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe there's a part where Kylo's in the foreground and the foe is in the background. And mm-hmm. as Kylo goes across, the camera counters him. And then Ryan does that and he goes, okay, so when they go here, we're going to come to here, <laughs> you know, yeah. and he would just mark out these positions the same as you would do with something that's not chaotic and moving fast like that. And the dolly grip would, or, you know, our key grip, who is the dolly grip, we were doing the English uh, system instead of American, (laughs) Uh is the the dolly grip, Uh, our unbelievable key grip, Kerry Hims, he would, you know, he would get all these marks and, you know, he just had a, you know, he had a freewheel and dolly where he's not on track and we have a stabilized head on it so that if the dolly jitters a little bit it doesn't look like it's shaking but it's that strong confidence of a dolly instead of handheld or you know instead of the shakiness of handheld or the floaty instability of steady cam and also that means the camera can easily go to any height we're not stuck at shoulder level or eye level or steady cam underslung level or anything it can be changing heights as we go to these positions so basically uh the short version of that is the all of the fight choreography showed up where they had done just the most remarkable job that, you know, you have to interview them because I have no idea how they do what they do, (laughs) you know, where they had done this incredible choreography. And then we had it set up between how we had the dolly configured and how we were doing everything to where then Ryan could fold in the camera into that dance and we could just do it. And it wasn't like, Oh my God, how are we going to achieve this? Never mind. Let's just put it handheld, you know, like, like we could actually do that like and and it was yeah it was just yeah it was just fantastic to watch ryan do that yeah no the final product is is astounding and i think that's obviously a a huge standout moment for the movie another one that is the climax of all the force bonds between kylo and ray that culminates with the hand touch in the the hut and so you know you go through the whole movie of them interacting in their separate spaces and then finally bringing them together and i'd be interested maybe tracking the journey of of showcasing those force bonds throughout the film then especially Mm. when they connect and how maybe you were shooting that and what was the the end goal through all of that you know again the the confidently honing in thing that i that i keep uh confidently honing in on (laughs) which is uh you know ryan knew from the beginning i mean like literally from the script stage that really he wanted to do that with basically just with eyeline like there's no, there's no magic tricks. There's no, you know, there, there's no weird force visual effects going on. Um, you know, which is also like, you know, the end of the end of empire, you know, when they're connecting, that's literally just 
again, it's, I mean, it's not a cut. It's like a two frame fade, but it's mm -hmm. still, it's just, you know, there's no magical stuff. There's no visual effects. It's just the, the whole point is that they're in two completely different spaces and you're covering it with camera and eyeline as though they're in the same space, right. you know, and, and kind of stayed true to that. And, you know, in fact, I think the first one we shot, which I now don't remember which one it is. I don't know if it's the first one in the, in the movie when we were shooting it, he actually strayed from that a little bit where he was, he was kind of like, well, it doesn't have to be exactly, you know, reverse eye lines. And then after we did that one, he was like, no, we should really stick to the original idea. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so it's kind of that. And then all it is, is bringing in beyond that. Um, it was just bringing in really subtle things that connect the two, like, you know, where he's got the water on his glove when she's right you know, when she's uh, getting sprayed with water, you know, she's under the falcon and the water and the waves are splashing up and, and stuff. And, you know, and then in that last one that you were talking about, you know, we just really subtly were bringing up a tiny bit of firelight so that you could see it in his eyes, mm. just that twinkle of the orange in his eyes and the tiny bit like in the shadows and stuff. But, you, you know, really, it was almost nothing, mm. you know. The jump from Last Jedi to then another incredible movie, Knives Out. <laughs> and and really, it might just be me imagining things or me extrapolating some things, but the the visual style really amps up in, in Knives Out and really becomes this loving testament, murder mysteries, obviously, and, and but also the visual style of that. I've been rewatching a lot of, like you said, Agatha Christie, um, but <laughs> I've been rewatching all like, the original Murder on the Orient Express, like all these old whodunits. And this is like, it really feels like the next extension of it. But I'd be interested to, to dive in a little bit on on what your key inspirations were for how that's lit and how that's shot. Um, because sure. it is it is so unique, and especially when compared to the other movies that were releasing around it, but also <laughs> just uh, with murder movies and, and mysteries in general. Yeah, I think like a lot, like the other stuff with Ryan, I mean, even going back to Brick, and then also that first conversation we ever had about Last Jedi is, you know, it's hard enough to tag all the bases, like, we want this to be beautiful, we want it to be rich and not, you know, bland and flat and slathered with a veneer, and it should really tell the story, like everything should be evocative of what's going on in the story, and not distractingly artificial, um, it can be, it can be, that, that's the theatrical realism. It can be elevated. It can be theatrical, right. but that elevated thing should be evocative of what's happening in the story and not just some artificial random thing. And it's kind of hard enough to do all of that. And then to, you know, to also say, and then also I want you to copy something that it doesn't even make sense what aspect you're copying. You, you, you know right. what I mean? Like you could light it exactly like a Technicolor movie, but it's not Technicolor or, you know what I mean? It, it kind of all came out of a, you know, challenging ourselves to take everything, to, to take all those same principles, but A, apply them to this, which is a totally different thing. So using the same principles is automatically going to give you something totally different. And then B, pushing ourselves to the next level of how can we, you know, really, you know, not just rest on our laurels and do, you know, kind of go to the next level and do something that's really targeted for this story and this and this movie and these locations and you know that's everything from the coverage which of course ryan already doesn't like to just fall into boring bland mm -hmm. coverage but it was imperative here to not you know you have a lot of scenes with eight or ten people six eight right. ten people seen and if you fall into like bland tv coverage or not not contemporary tv because contemporary tv looks like you know great cinema but you know like <laughs> you know if you were to fall into like 90s tv coverage right. 
where it's like the exact same size frontal close up on everybody. A, the movie is going to be ridiculously boring looking and B, we're never going to make our schedule because you're going to have to have every single person from every angle of every other person looking at them. Right. <laughs> and because and once you start in with that cadence, you, you, if you don't have one, it actually does feel like it's missing. Right. If all you have is bland frontal close-ups, but you're missing one on a certain person, it feels like it's missing. But if you arrange people in, the, in these beautiful stacked sort of like Kurosawa-esque, you know, arrangements of characters, yeah. you know, that's a great way to show it. It's much more dramatic. The movie looks better. Um, it, it's just so much more interesting. It's evocative of the fact that this isn't an ensemble piece because you actually have shots of ensembles. Right. <laughs> and, and, and it means you actually have some hope of shooting the movie in the, in the time allotted. So, so everything from that, which is more blocking to, you know, lighting is the same thing, which is, you know, there's different things we could have gone with in terms of the interiors but you know they brought me out to that house which they pretty much wasn't 100 percent, but they pretty much knew they were was going to be the exterior and at least some of the interior mm -hmm. and it was months months before we shot it and it was summer and we knew we were going to shoot it in winter and it, you know it's that house with a thick wood and the deep set windows and all that stuff and i was like you know let's really try to be evocative of the steely winter light that we're going to have in here at that time and that included getting you know faster lenses so that in certain cases we could be using the real window light and then also you know some of this led light control stuff where we were using a spectrometer and matching the real window light to the to our fill light which a makes it look more realistic like you know you're not just you know you're not you know the old way would be you know you have to use a light that's a fixed color and then you could put some amount of a fixed color gel on it mm -hmm. but you can't get off of that that's basically a line you can you're, you know you're basically crossfading on a line there whereas here right. if that if that steely color is also a little green whatever it is we can really make it feel organic and and not only that but we can chase it as the light changes outside so if even from take to take if it got oranger out there we can orange our lights inside so it still looks like it's the same light bouncing around i mean a counter example of what might have been done is you know because we're landing in a room with giant windows and we're going to be in there for a huge dialogue scene and you know you could imagine a scenario and i mean i myself have done this where you walk in there and you say my God, the light from this window is absolutely beautiful. But firstly, it's kind of dim. And more importantly, we have to shoot a whole scene here and it's going to be changing over the course of the day. And at some point it's going to get to be night. So, you know what, let's just tent it and put movie lights out there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, and, and that's fine. You can do that. There are some exceptions, but basically we didn't do that. We said, if we do the real light, we're going to, or the size of the rig you would have to do to be the same as not doing anything is gigantic. Right. You know, so more likely you're going to do a scaled down one that's not as good. <laughs> this way we we get exactly the evocation of the real window light. And then we change the inside. Instead of fixing the outside so that we don't have to change the inside, we chase it on the inside. If it gets oranger out there, we, we tune our lights to be oranger. If it gets darker out there, we dim our lights and open the stop. So yeah, so everything was kind of designed around, yeah, that challenging ourselves to, to take it up a notch and to really be evocative. And, you know, the same thing, like we have some, you know, we have some really film noir -y things with like the projection shadows from those sort of filigree lampshades mm -hmm. that are in there. We kind of hit on that early on. And then followed up with it there's um i think the first time we did it is there's the shot that when you hear there's the thud upstairs mm -hmm. and and Joni looks up and the camera tilts up to the ceiling you know and i said to ryan i'm like we're kind of tilting to nothing because it's a white ceiling you're basically 
tilting to a smooth, even field. What if I put like some kind of a projection shadow on there? He's like, and of course he's like, yeah, sure. You know? <laughs> so, so we found, you know, we hadn't planned this. This was when we were, you know, we were, I think we were doing another shot, but we were setting up for that shot to do it next. And um, we found just one of those filigree lampshades and the gaffer put it, we got a, you know, a, a, a bulb with a really sharp filament, like even sharper than a clear light bulb, basically made a shroud and, a, and I think it was just a C-stand arm or some kind of a rod with a shroud. So you've got this light bulb held away from the lampshade in a shroud. So it's only going through the lampshade. And we projected that on the ceiling. And then once, once we had done that, then we ended up doing that some more for some for some other things, like when they, I think there might be a point where they go into the, uh, when Christopher Plummer and Michael Shannon are, are talking about the Netflix deal and all that, and they're, and they're huddled in the, in the doorway, the fill light on them is, is that, oh, I mean, you know, is, 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 and you can actually see their faces moving around in that pattern to where like, there's the glint in the eye and then he moves a little and it's blocked wow. by that filigree pattern. And, Man. Okay, well, maybe now it's a double feature of Last Jedi and I was out tonight. Um, to, to wrap up things, mm-hmm. I'm glad we're talking today because as of today, now there have been one and a half seconds released of Knives Out 2, so I don't feel as guilty. Uh, those are a great one and a half Right, seconds. I really, it was great so far, uh, the very thing I've seen this year. But I mean, as much as you can say or as little as you can say, but was the experience working with Ryan, working with, Rom, working with that group again as rewarding and as exciting because oh yeah i mean ryan is in such a groove he's just every time it just it's just so delightful to see him you know bringing everything to the next level every time he just brings it up like you're like god the story's even better it's even funnier you know the shot ideas are even more again not show-offy but just even more exciting for storytelling and not only that, but he keeps getting better and better, even with the, even just with the, the, the working style. And, and he's just so incredible with every single person. Like he's kind and, and generous to everybody. You know, it's not like, it's, you know, it's not one of these, like be a gentleman to the cast and then yell at the crew or, you know, I mean, he just, he's so loving and it's also amazing. Just, I know it's not true that he never gets tired. Everybody gets tired, but you you wouldn't know it in that. um, I mean, sometimes you can see that he's tired, but he doesn't get grouchy and start, you know, yelling at people or anything. He's just, you know, even, you know, which you could forgive, but even it could be, you know, it could be the, you know, you could have been going weeks on end and this is the last day of a week where every day was long or something. And he's still going to be, kind and thoughtful to everybody and you know it's just yeah it's fantastic wonderful well i cannot wait to see what y'all have cooking and yeah it's i think my top movies i've seen this year so far in 2022 it's like drive my car number one number two the one and a half second gif that ryan posted <laughs> uh, so i think i think we're doing pretty good so i can't wait um uh, well, i think the cup i think the final cut might be a little bit longer than one and a half interesting seconds interesting that's a that's a scoop right there that's yeah that's a yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, don't tell anybody I told you I gave that away. <laughs> right. right there. Uh, well, wonderful. Mr. Yedlin, thank you for doing this. This was such an honor and such a thrill. So I appreciate your time. Oh, okay. Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
Thank you so much again to Mr. Yedlin for his incredibly generous time and incredibly powerful storytelling. For more, follow him on Twitter at Steve Yedlin or his website, yedlin.net. We'll see Knives Out 2 later this year. That's all for this week. Coming up soon are my already recorded interviews with people like Sandy Doyvetter, Frank Ordaz, Brian Muir, and many more. If right now you can leave a five-star rating and review for the show, it means a lot and really helps me out. And until next week, stay tuned, leave that review, and may the force be with you.